chapter two. And again, it's so good to see you all. And again, on the other side, those sitting in the cafe, God bless you. And those at home, we love you and can't wait to see you. Uh, we had one of our sisters come in that has been literally a year since she was here because of everything that was going on. And she came in, she's sitting in the cafe side and I saw her and I'm like, it is so good. It is that, I, do you know that feeling? You know, it's your family and you don't see a person in your family for a year and you see them and you know, you want to be careful because you don't want that, but you just want to just love all over them. You know, you just want to just hug them, bring them as close and hold them so tight. And um, so it's just, uh, it is beautiful. It is beautiful. We are so connected in the spirit. And I love that the Holy Spirit connects us and the way he just ministers to us so faithfully. I, I've been just absolutely enjoying this study that the Lord's been bringing us all through in First Thessalonians here. And as we proceed to go into chapter two, and of course we have communion this morning. So, oh man, he blesses us with that as well. Do this, this do in remembrance of me. Uh, as we look at these things, God's going to be narrowing us into a little bit of Paul's conduct. Because remember, in verse 7, this is a model church, right? Paul says that you're an example to all those that are in Greece, Macedonia and in that area. And just think about that. I mean, to, to hear those words from the Apostle Paul. I mean, what a great encouragement, but also what a great responsibility. Amen? And I think about that often, that uh, as God speaks that into the hearts of uh, pastors, under shepherds, all across the United States and the world in different areas where they're being told by God, you, you're an example. Your life, the word of God going forward, that's the example. So let's bow our heads. We're going to pray and we'll get right into the word here this morning. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We pray you will anoint it as you always do, Lord. Literally just let it pour forth here this morning. Let me get out of the way. Let your word go forward. Lord, I pray as my brother prayed during our uh, our, our time of worship with you, that, Lord, you would steady and ready our hearts. And that, God, the, the word that would come in, it would conform us and transform us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. God, we, um, we are your children if we're born-again believers, and we go by your name. And we want the fullness, Lord, of just being in koinonia and relationship with you in a deeper, more meaningful way than we ever have been in our entire lives, Lord. May this day be the day, Lord, where we receive more of you, and certainly that's because we've cast more of us out, as you said in John 3, ever decreasing, Lord, and you ever increasing, ever increasing in our hearts. That's our prayer here this morning, God, and we thank you that we don't have to forsake the fellowship and the gathering of the saints, as you've commanded, Lord. Thank you for obedience to Jesus. We pray this in your holy name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people pray. Amen. Well, just as a quick way, we've gone through a few verses this morning. As a way of reminder, I'll read them again just from chapter 2, and we'll get a little bit of a running start here, okay? For you yourselves know, brethren, that's verse 1 of chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, that our coming to you was not in vain. We've talked a little bit about that. We've got the meat off the bone. First of all, he's talking to believers in Christ. The church in Thessalonica, he confirms that, right, by saying brethren. And as believers in Christ, we understand that uh, there are purposes in divine appointments, right? So he comes to them with this divine appointment, and he says that it was not coming to you in vain. There was no emptiness. There was purpose in the way that Paul and Timothy and Silas was, were coming to that church with true intention. Just as you and I, when we come to others, we come with true intention and purpose, don't we? We come with the gospel and the love of Jesus Christ. He then goes on to say, but even after we had suffered before, 
and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict, right? So again, the gospel and the truth found within scripture is the opposite of vanity. I think we could, if you can write that in the margins, you know, opposite of vanity is what? The gospel of truth and love. That's what we read here. The second thing is that the, the gospel has a perfect purpose in each and every one of our lives. And I would can I say it this way? Not only our lives, but even in the lives of others in ways we don't comprehend. When we give love, when we teach the word of God, when it goes forward that way, when we share the word of God, we have no idea the way it's going to affect other people. Families and the multiplication effect begins to take off. It is absolutely supernatural. It is supernatural what God does through his holy word. It never returns void and there is power in the name of Jesus. And Paul's just declaring that, almost as it's, it's, it's declarative here, okay? And Paul's making clear there's nothing um, vain about the apostles' motives. There's nothing, men that aren't, you know, the idea of drawing men to yourselves, that's, that's not biblical. Drawing men to Jesus Christ, that's what it looks like. And that's what, again, he's trying to connote or explain as he's bringing this all together. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's his word, Okay? And then in verse 2, as we just read, because it's not in vain, he says, right, and the gospel uh, is profitable. We studied that last week. You remember 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17? We looked at that together. That nothing is going to stop the disciples of Jesus Christ from sharing the gospel during great times of suffering and great times of conflict. Our circumstances change. Our God never does. That's the moral to the a counter story, okay? Our circumstances change, our God never does. And the moment we grasp onto that truth is the moment we are ready to be used and poured out as a drink offering before our Lord Jesus Christ and used as willing vessels. Isaiah chapter 6, right? Here I am, Lord, use me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I am undone. We all begin to understand those words. It wasn't just a, a nice saying, but it's being wrecked in a beautiful way by Jesus. We are like, Lord, as we just sang, up the, sang this morning, Lord, I'm yours. I'm surrendered. I'm yours, Lord. Have your way in me. I can't think of anything more perfect than that. And that's the walk of a, Christ, a Christian, a disciple of Jesus Christ. He also says that through severe trials, uh, we read in Acts last week, we saw a beautiful demonstration of faith as he continued to preach the gospel boldly. He was beaten, he was thrown, you know, stones thrown him to the point of near death. Well, actually they thought he was dead and dragged him out of the city. You remember that in Acts 16? They literally thought he was dead. And what did he do? He got up as the disciples, he heard their voices. He looked at him. He says, okay, we got work to do. Let's go back. I love that. That's my marching orders. That's my marching orders. You know, I love that. That's how Christ works. He, he desires and creates a boldness in the believer. We walk in victory and truth and we in love, give the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that sets hearts and minds free. And that's, that's the power of the gospel. That's the power unto salvation. And, and again, practically speaking, it's not wrong for the Christian to expect suffering. It's not wrong for the Christian to expect oppression, difficulties. And I say this very, very adamantly because there are churches and unfortunately false gospels that say that uh, if something bad happens to you or if you're going through, you've sinned or there's something wrong with you. That is a lie from the pit of hell. That is not biblical. Jesus Christ himself said and also experienced great uh, sufferings and conflict. But last I checked, 
my God's alive and he's on the throne. And because he's alive and on the throne, he promises the first fruits of the resurrection to do what? To resurrect you and I. Death has lost its sting, as Paul says. Clearly, we understand what this means. It doesn't mean that our lives are without difficulty. It doesn't mean there's not conflict. It simply means we've already been guaranteed a victory far superior anything in the temporal realm, and it extends far beyond that to the eternal. And that's important because if we hold on to that, then our eschatology doesn't get, you know, misshapen by people saying, well, you see, that's why we have to go through the great tribulation. No, we don't. And no, we won't. Because he hasn't given the church under wrath and God is not grammatically challenged. We do well to recognize, remember, God uses, again, different circumstances, even difficult ones. Dare I say, as I look before you, I remember when Preston was diagnosed with Crohn's disease at 10 years old. My son came into our kitchen. The doctor had called the day before. My wife received the call. It was very, not a very good call because he had perianal Crohn's, which is a very um, difficult time of Crohn's to treat, especially because it, it, it's just very complicated, but it can cause different things within the body, organs to connect and different things like that. And all of a sudden, the doctors are telling us, we need to do this, we need to do that. And, uh, you know, we were told by God, don't be dismayed. Don't trust what you see. Lisa received that passage, Joshua 1.9. And from that, our lives have forever changed because we began looking to the Lord in all things, in everything, not trusting even our own wisdom because that's a difficult decision to make, isn't it? When you have a 10-year-old child and they want to put them on biologics and there's times you need to do things like that. Please don't misunderstand me. But there's also times where that's not the right thing and to try to decide what to do. And I remember my son coming in and as I was weeping before my son because I couldn't protect him, and I couldn't, I couldn't fix that. And um, I remember coming into him and, and him putting his hand on me and, and saying, Dad, it's okay. Jesus has got me. God's got me. He's got this. And I looked to it and I said, that's a boldness of Christ. This boy's teaching me what it is to be a man of God. And, uh, you know, that circumstance, boy, I wouldn't wish it upon my worst enemy, but how it has changed our family and our faith. You know, we, we stepped, we left what we knew, our doctors, things like that. We traveled five hours away. We come for a Bible study. We move our family. We didn't even know any doctors down here. We didn't care about any of that. And it was all because we started trusting the word of God over man's wisdom. And we started being led by faith and by the Lord alone, not by things we could understand, intellectualize, or, you know, as humanists figure out. And there comes a point where we have to flip that switch and we, as Jesus and Jesus Christ alone, certainly he's put physicians around us to care for us. He's putting people in the flock to, you know, help us with natural things. I mean, those are all wonderful things. But without God's leading, we, we, what can we do? Where do we go? And Paul is making it very clear that in your circumstances, the perspective of suffering and difficulties could actually be the thing that leads someone to Christ. It could actually be the thing that settles someone's spirit. It could actually change the hearts and minds of people around you because more is caught than taught. And that's what we learn even just in these first two verses. Please look at me in verse three now. For our exhortation did not come, underline that word exhortation. We don't really use that often today in the English. It did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing as men, or not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor cloak or covenous. God is witness. 
nor did we see glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands on the apostles of Christ. Clearly this word exhortation, right? Uh, Paraclesis. Uh, we don't use, again, that word frequently in the English today as speech. It's not a common word. It can be used in Scripture to mean several different things. Again, you've got to look at the context and how it's being used in the Greek to know what this word means. Um, it can mean, just to give you an idea, calling near. It can mean when you beckon or summon, summon someone to you, okay, as an example. It can mean uh, a calling for help. Uh, I've fallen, you know, we've all heard that commercial, right? Uh, it, it can mean the idea of imploring, a supplication. It can mean a treating. Um, an admonishing, an encouragement, a consolation, a comfort, a solace, uh, and universally a, persa- a persuasive discourse or a stirring address. It's the latter. It's the last one I just shared with you. The idea in context, what is being used here in the Greek, is a persuasive discourse. But it can mean all those other things. So we must study the original language. We go into the original manuscripts. We see it in context, and we, we can understand and derive. Uh, even with a good lexicon, you can... If you don't read the Greek, you can come to these same conclusions. So in Scripture, what he's saying here, right, in verse 3, this idea of exhortation, he's saying that his instruction and preaching didn't come from error or from uncleanness, right? He says that it didn't come from deceit either, right? No, we read in verse 4, it says that he and the word of God, it was approved by God. It was from God. It was approved by God. This is very, very important because he's laying the foundation of Scripture and the value of Scripture, where it comes, the authority of Scripture, the authority of the Word of God. What do we trust? Do we trust men or women or different situations, or do we trust the Word of God? And that's what he is laying out here. He says in verse 4, approved by God, and it's, it's God's Word. We need to allow the Holy Spirit to be the teacher. Amen? As as I read the word of God to you, I'm simply reading scripture to you here this morning. The word of God and the Holy Spirit takes that. He gives you application. He applies it to your heart. I don't need to browbeat anybody in here, right? I don't need to tickle anybody's ears in here. That's not my job. I'm a man of unclean lips. I have no ability to do anything like that, nor do I have uh, the capacity to ever speak with the authority that the word of God always speaks with because it's burst perfectly into our hearts. I would blow it, friends. You know that. You know me well enough. I'd blow it. Because if you had a need, we're coming for counseling. You know I often go right back to the word of God to counsel you, to give you, you know, help, exhortation, things we need. And often, if I did it, well, you know what I do, you know, we get, I was a hockey player, some of you know that, you know, you get injured, different things happen. What do you do? You get a, a boo-boo, right? You say that to the little kids, a boo-boo. What do you do? You rip the Band-Aid off, right? Better to do it fast and keep moving, right? That's my sort of, that's just pain leaving the body, right? That's just weakness, pain leaving the body. That doesn't work so good for everybody in here, though, does it? Not everybody subscribes to that uh, notion, right? You're kind of like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Aren't you glad the Holy Spirit doesn't operate that way? The Holy Spirit is so gentle because he comes in not with a thyation sword. Remember that sword that comes in and pierces the marrow and the flesh, right? And, and right to the heart. It's not a thyation sword. If There's two different words for sword in the scriptures in the Greek. Thyation is this idea of a big, long javelin. It's something that you would hack and, you know. No, he comes in with a surgical instrument. And he goes right into the heart, and that's how the scripture read, specifically that it tells us that he goes in and he only removes the dross, the impurity, but he keeps everything whole and intact. What it would be like if we could have surgeries that way physically, right, on our, our hands, our arms, where, where the doctor literally could go in and he could remove just what was bad, and yet there would be no recovery time, there would be no healing, there would be nothing required 
because it was done by the perfect, the great physician, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's exactly what he does in the heart. And that's exactly why he's given us the word of God, because the word of God has the perfect way to pierce the marrow. It says it never returns void, and it pierces us, and it goes in, and the word of God changes us, transforms us. And uh, friends, it's lovely. It's lovely to experience it. Sometimes it is difficult, though, that conviction. It's, whoa, man, what happened? But there's a rest that comes with that once we get right and we submit in that. We, we get a perfect rest and a peace that comes upon us. That's what he's talking about here. That's what this word, this exhortation gives us. It's that, that persuasive discourse, that stirring address that the Lord Jesus will give us. You can look at passages like Matthew chapter 10, verses 19 through 20. You can look at John 14, 26. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. And, and 1 John chapter 2 verse 27, to see how he speaks about the word of God. Let, let's just take a moment. I'm going to turn there. You can just listen if you'd like for time's sake. Matthew chapter 10, I'll just turn there this morning. And I'm going to look at verses uh, 19 and 20. It says, but when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in the hour of what you should speak. Speaking of our great teacher, the Holy Spirit, and how he would move before us, right? Verse 24, it is not you who speaks, but the spirit of your father who what? Speaks in you. Do you see the power of that in Matthew 19, 20? Turn to John now. John, again, you don't have to, but John chapter 14, I'll read it out loud. John chapter 14 Verse 26 says, Jesus tells us, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. Again, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, this is his word. It's inspired by God. God breathed. And as it goes forward and you all hear it in your ears, something supernatural happens. He takes the word off this page and dynamically, as he places that in your ears, you hear what you need, a born-again believer in Christ, of course, you hear what you need to hear in the spirit and God applies it appropriate to your life. Two different, three different, five, a hundred different people can hear the same message from the word of God and God touches each person uniquely with what they need to hear at that moment from the living God. You, you can't explain that in any other narrative or account or any other uh, writing that you would ever see. It's, it's, it's God-breathed, and we must acknowledge that. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I'm going to turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We look at uh, verses 12 and 13. He says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God, that these things which also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches. Do you see that? It's not something you can get from man's wisdom. But which the Holy Spirit teaches comparing spiritual things with spiritual. That's what's happening here this morning. That's why we read the word of God line by line and verse by verse, precept upon precept. That's why I don't typically teach topically. Not, not that there's anything wrong with a topical or systematic teaching, but if I go to the buffet and I only pick the foods I like to eat, am I getting the whole, you understand where I'm going this, the whole counsel of God? Or am I getting an interpretation from a man that week that might be inspired by the Lord nonetheless, but what he thinks I need? No, I want to hear from Jesus. 
And I want to hear everything Jesus has to say to me. I don't want to leave any portion of that out. I need that. I, I don't know about you, but I, I live on that. I, I spend hours in my Bible. I need these words because they are holy and true. They're my, they're my life. They're, Jesus is my life. Uh, look in 1 John chapter 2. Again, 1 John chapter 2, if I turn to verse 27, right? And this is speaking to the truth. I'm going to back up to verse 24 of 1 John chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If that you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you, okay? But the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you, but that the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and it is true, and it is not a lie, and it is just as been taught to you, and you will abide in him. That frightens many biblical teachers. What do you mean, I'm not needed? No, praise Jesus. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'm simply reading the word of God and the Holy Spirit takes that application and he places that in your heart. And that way, who gets all the glory? A man? A man that's inadequate that would stand up here this morning? Or does Jesus Christ who anointed the Holy Word get the glory? I think we all know the answer to that one. Amen? So you can see, as you turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, you can see what he's saying here in verse 4 and and just the power that it's approved by God, right? We have been entrusted with a gospel that we have the precious truth that needs to be presented simply, okay? And without regard for public opinion, and it's not up to being a man pleaser. Now, that's not just for the pastor of the church or the under shepherd here. That's for all of you. You're a royal priesthood, a precious people as ministers of Christ. You are not to already go and suggest, what am I to say? We just read Jesus's words on that. He said, I'll tell you what to say in that given time. You don't pre-plan a meeting, you don't pre-rehearse what you're going to say. No, you let Jesus speak. You be the vessel. You go with the Bible, you open your Bible, and you bring love and truth, and you watch God take it from there. And just as I like to pray, Lord, help me get out of the way. I'm going to get out of the way. That, that's what we're learning here, and that's what we see that it's important. And again, because remember persuasive discourse? We read in verse 3 there, that word exhortation. He's saying that when we do that, when we go to people to even evangelize or to even encourage when we're discipling, we have to be careful that our words are simple. If I can give you a couple things as axioms this morning, simple. We say that we teach God's word simply here, don't we? That's one of the things we have written on our sweatshirts. We have different places. Teaching God's word simply. It's in scripture, right? It doesn't need to be overly complex, it doesn't need to be laced in tradition and, and, and all these other things. No, it's not flattering. We're not turning around and just lathering it up, right? We're not, oh boy, you know, and just really laying it on heavy. As you notice, we talked about land this morning, right? This is a perfect example because I, if there's one thing the Lord knows, it absolutely makes me go, ah, when I have to come forward and say, Lord, we need 70,000. How are you going to do I'm like, oh, I, I cringe because I never want to flee sheep. I never want to misrepresent God. I take it the utmost seriousness about that. And I never, as you guys know, one other time that we've been here, a security project, the only other time we've ever come forward and shared that, we, do ne we never do that here, right? Because there's enough people on TV that have turned away Christians and given the Christian movement a bad name 
because they turn around and they fleece sheep. And so I'm very careful and want to be spirit-led in how I do these things. But, but notice that there wasn't persuasive words. It wasn't like, and, I, and I'm making fun of myself here, it wasn't like, take out your wallets. We're sending a plate around. Throw a pot, you know, God, if you love God, you got to do this. Or, you know, hey, you know, if we, God, the kingdom of God's going to go broke. He's going to go broke. He's going to have to file bankruptcy if you don't give 70 grand. Nothing like that. And I'll tell you what, you ever work, walk in a church or you ever walk around and a pastor actually says that like that? You know what? The best thing you can do is pray for him. Well, you can walk out. I heard somebody say, walk out. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, how about we pray for him? How about we pray? Because maybe, he, maybe he's nervous too and he's not sure how to communicate that. Maybe we pray for him and just seek the Lord in these things, right? But they need to be simple. They can't be flattering. And there's no reason for being overly persuasive. Because you know what? The, I learned this a long, long time ago. The devil, as it says in Scripture, can appear as an angel of light. He can appear as an angel of light. And you know what? If you can be persuaded in, the devil can persuade you out. You need to know your faith isn't blind, but your faith is only as good as what you place your faith in. You never place your faith in a man. You place your faith in the God-man, Jesus Christ. That's the difference. That's the difference. You know, again, it's not popular. It's not, it's certainly not uh, ego building. But it's pure and it's right. Because you never have to worry about committing idolatry. Because there's no touching of the glory of God. And that's right. That's the right thing for all of us to do. Never touch the glory of God. To recognize the supernatural movement of the Holy Spirit, the teaching of the Holy Spirit, the way he works in our hearts, to acknowledge that the Bible we have, the scriptures we hold before you right now, that it's God-breathed, and this is not like any other Bible. It's not like anything else. It's not, when I say Bible, work of, you know, man, the other works of men, like I think of the, the uh, you know, the Mormon book, right? Or I think of, you know, uh, you know, Islam and their books, or I think of all these other things, the Quran. No, these are, these are written by man. This is inspired by God. This is God breathed. There's nothing else you have. There's no other written word, no narrative, nothing like it. Over 1,500 plus prophecies in it, 27% of your Bible, one third of it is future telling. And it's always right. And it's always been right 100% of the time. And it always will be right because God of the universe gave it to us that we wouldn't wander aimlessly, but that we would have direction and purpose and comfort knowing that our God has reached out to us individually and drawn us to himself. We're his and we're blood bought. And what waits us is eternity and not just heaven, heaven with Jesus heaven with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, the family reunion of all of us being gathered together and those that have gone before us, that's what elates the believer. Nothing else and no one else can give you that kind of a guarantee, that promise, that love. And God knows the heart and motives. Look at uh, verse 5 there, right? He says, For neither at any time do we use flattering words, as you know, nor cloak or covetousness. God is witness. He says, Before God, right? You see, God's the only one that knows the hearts and motives of, of people. Isn't it true? We, we don't know that. We're fruit inspectors. We can see the fruit. We can kind of judge. But we don't know the heart and the motive of his heart. Only God is the one that knows that. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, we just read that a few months back. We're not to flatter. 
God is the tester of the heart. Do we think the best of others? Are we always thinking the worst? My God tells me I'm to think the best of others until proven differently. I'm to judge the motives of the heart by being a fruit inspector and in the spirit, expecting the best from everyone. If someone lies to me, that's between the Lord and them. I I certainly don't need to have an opinion on that or what to do about that. Vengeance is the Lord's. I don't need any of that. That's all just a distraction. I need to be faithful unto Christ, and that's where I keep my eyes. And I let him deal with every other circumstance. It's far beyond my ability or grasp to be able to do that. And in verse 5, he says that we're not to use deceit or trickery. That's what he's really saying there, right? There is no bait and switch. There's no bait and switch gospel. Come on in. We have a pub in the back here where we're serving beer to the teen ministry or to the men's group because we think it's a fun thing to do and we can all, you know, meet in the pub in the back. And then, oh, by the way, as I get to scriptures in Ephesians 5 and 1 Corinthians and it says, don't be a drunkard. And then I go, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't, you know, now that you've been with us for a while, you really shouldn't be getting drunk anymore. That's a bait and switch. You lured them in with a false gospel. You baited them, and then you switch it by giving them the gospel and saying, now you're a heathen if you keep doing this. That's not what Jesus ever did. He never compromised. It was the fullness of truth and the fullness of love. The reality is when the word of God is being taught, we don't change the word. The word changes us. We don't turn around and try to join or blend the culture. No, the culture comes to the word of God and is changed by it, set free. We don't need to compromise to to win people to Christ. It means justify the end. No such thing in scripture. No such thing. Without the word of God, I wouldn't be able to be calibrated to know truth. I'd be wondering, well, what's truth to me today based on my emotions, my feelings, and quite honestly, my hormones. I wouldn't know anything else to, to, to even begin to be able to understand what true north looked like if I use that as an example of truth. Thank you, Jesus, for the word of God. Thank you, Jesus, for your Holy Spirit. And thank you, God, the Father, for your Son. These are all blessings upon us. This is not only our God, he's our friend, he's our brother. He's our love. And he's not going to beguile us or trick us. And if you go to someplace where you're being deceived and tricked, that's the time I say get out of there. If you're getting taught a false gospel or another narrative, because you hear a place where they don't say sin and they call it stuff, that's a place to get out of there because you're not going to get truth. You're going to get what you need to hear. And you know what? As children of God, he wants better for his kids. He wants better for his sons and daughters. As a matter of fact, he wants the best for you. The best is all that'll do. He wants his word, his son, and truth. He doesn't want some amalgamation of that. Because anytime you distract from the true gospel, it's an alternate gospel by by definition, right? whether it's a tradition or uh, uh, some other kind of doctrine. We, you, you understand why he's bringing this to us here and showing this to it. But I, I don't know about you, but I, to me, it requires tremendous humility. Because when we go through difficulties, I want to believe I'm always right. I want to turn around and hold on to that. And I'm right, you know. And it's difficult for me to say and acknowledge the fact that my, my flesh can 
my emotions can, um, even if it's not deliberate, it, it, they can betray me. They can betray me, friends. You, you know what I'm talking about. You know, Psalm 101.5 tells us there is no room for pride. I was just reading this the other the morning as I was studying. The Lord just pressed this on my heart. I was like, Lord, you know, give me a word for this where I can help the people understand your heart on this because my heart is obviously to seek humility and things. But, but Lord, give me your heart on this. And he, he brought me to Psalm 101.5. No, it's really 101.5b, if I can say, not the first half of the verse, but I'll read the first half. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. Ooh, okay. That was, I'm awake. Um, but B of that verse, of verse 5, the one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. Wow. Well, I think that's pretty clear cut, isn't it? I, I wasn't, Lord, what do you mean? I knew very clearly what God meant, and I thank the Lord for that. I'm not, it's very absolute uh, what he was saying to me. You know, all that we must do must be for God and to God. Even our love for others should be um, demonstrated in the way uh, we, we carry out our love for others as we did to our Father in heaven, right? It, it, because it draws glory back unto God, and that's the whole purpose. Even the way we treat other people draws glory back to God. A false modesty or humility, um, you know, maybe looking to be recognized for doing good or some type of false humility that way, you know, um, that doesn't glorify God. That, that doesn't in any way help. After all, who does all glory belong to? It's God, right? Psalm 115, verse 1. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. You know, I've come to this reality in my life, and I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm in good company this morning as far as some of you have come into this same reality, but uh, anything I do on my part, anything, anything I touch, think, or do, anything I do on my part without God's moving is futile. It's meaningless. Anything I do without God's leading is futile and meaningless. Because it's not God's will be done. It's Matt's will be done. And that, that's hard, right? That's a tough little blow there when you get the, oh, okay, Lord. Boy, that was a good one. All right. No, he's gentle. You see, the right response and motive can be find, found if you turn to Matthew chapter 5, please. I'm so grateful for this. Matthew chapter 5. He, he tells us very clear in verse 16. You know, we're salt and light as believers, right? And he tells us in chapter 5, verse 16, Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works, and they glorify your Father in heaven. That's what we do. There it is. That's what Jesus commanded us to do. That when we do things to help others, when we do things that are kingdom-bound or kingdom-focused, it's not about us and how we feel. That's awesome because many times we feel wonderful doing the work of the Lord, don't we? It's wonderful. Nothing else like it. But that's not the motive. The motive is to bring glory to God even the way we treat other people. You know, I've, how many of you like to go out and eat sometimes? You know, you go out to different restaurants, different things like that. How many of you notice some of the best food is in like shacks that you would normally look at and go, 
man, I ain't going in there. I have now come to the point of when it looks like that and it's run down, I'm like, I cannot wait. Are you hungry? I'm hungry. Let's go. As long as they're not written up by the food inspector, I'm good, man. And I go right in there, right? And I'm like, oh, you get authentic food, you know. Somebody that's maybe here from, you know, the country legally, they've, they're trying to earn their way or they're just, you know, man, and their grandmother or their mother, they're just cooking with their heart in there, man. Their soul, they're just, boom, bringing it forward. And it's, oh, you eat it and it's so good, right? Brunch. And uh, so you're turning around and you just say, okay, so I got you paying attention now. Guess what? When we turn around and look at other people, sometimes when we look at people and they're the most wrecked looking and we judge them and we look at them and say, man, there's something rough about that person or just not right. Boy, I can come to the wrong conclusion quick. And if I just pour in and invest in them, I can find they are the greatest person on earth and have such a depth of love in the relationship that I receive in Christ with them, far, be, far beats the, the most handsome, greatest, tallest-looking guy like King Saul. There's a lesson in that for us this morning. He who has ears, let him hear. So clearly, it's others-focused. All glory belongs to God, right? And he says, let your light so shine before men that as they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And then I look down to verse 6. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, that we might have made demands as apostles in Christ. That's, that's striking here. You know, maybe some teachers were trying to infiltrate this church, right, and making demands on the people. Or maybe Paul was just demonstrating the example that he had set for the apostles in Christ. Welcome. Glad you're here with us this morning. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6. Um, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and one of the ushers will bring you some Bibles. God bless you. So clearly see what he's saying here. We don't know. We're not told exactly what the circumstance was, but clearly there was something going on that maybe, uh, you know, it's the church of Thessalonica, right? First Thessalonians, we're in chapter two. Clearly something's going on that Paul is trying to say, hey, we're not like these other guys or there's some other thing going on there. And he says, no, no, no. We're not making these demands of you that way. So there was clearly something going on here. And, and again, maybe he was just trying to be an example, as, as, as an example of Christ, or because Jesus said, I hate the what? Nicolaitans. Certainly there's authority in the church. We understand that. Nobody questions that, right? There's authority in under-shepherd pastors, elders. We get those things. There's authority in your homes. You know, the men are the pastors of homes. We understand those things. Those things are not hard for us. There's authority at your workplace, right? You have an employer, a boss. You, you have an arrangement with him. You give him your time. He gives you dollars, which is your tent making, which you use to invest in the kingdom of God somehow by eating and being stronger and healthy to go out and pour into other people. It's, it's, I don't think any of us question those things. We've understand, we understand those things. And that's exactly what he's showing us. Look, look at verses 7 through 12 now as we'll continue on in First Thessalonians chapter 2. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, and our labor and toil, for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. 
you are witnesses and God also how devoutly and justly, please underline those in your scripture, and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk, and please underline this, worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Powerful. Powerful what he's saying here. So the first thing, back to verse 7, right? If you're going back, we'll get all the meat off the bone here. He has a lot to say. If you look at, and I don't know if you've been tracking how many times he says the gospel of God. Uh, I happen to look at this. I mean, you can go back to chapter 1, verse 5, chapter 2, verse 2. You can go to chapter 2, verse 4, verse 8, verse 9, and verse uh, chapter 3, verse 2. He uses this idea of gospel of God. Just in the first 12 verses alone, he says it four different times in four different verses. So clearly there's a lot to be said about the word of God and the gospel of God that he's bringing this to our attention in such a concentrated way in just these first 12 verses. And obviously there's a strong emphasis on the gospel. Now, we shouldn't be surprised for that. And it's not surprising since, again, the, the church of Thessalonica in chapter 1, verse 7 says that this is a model church to Europe, right? In this way, Greece in particular, okay? Macedonia, you know, Macedonia that way. So again, not surprising that God is laying that down for us to understand the word of God is preeminent and Jesus Christ is preeminent. We understand that. That's what he's sharing with us, okay? Now, we read here, though, when you get to verse 8, he talks about, well, even he really talks about it in verse 7 too, but he's building on this idea of gentleness. I like that. Again, it goes exactly what Jesus says in Revelation, where he says, I hate the Nicolaitans, those that lord over people. He says, no, no, God's interested in a gentle and a contrite heart and spirit, right? He places that in us. So look what he says here. He says, he says that they're gentle, they're caring, they're loving, and what do they do? They speak truth. Their lives are living examples. Their lives are living epistles to be known and read by men and women, right? It matters. It matters. And again, as I've already mentioned, this is a model church. So 2,000 years later, what do, you think, what do you think we should be doing? How do you think we should be behaving one to another, right? Someone comes in, the, the fellowship, they're new, right? We have two services, maybe their first service person, second service person, and you see them. Do you love them as Jesus Christ loves them? Are you playing church or are you playing Christian? I think that's what it's got to come down to. Are you playing church or are you playing Christian? Do you believe this? Do you believe the word of God? And are you being the hands and feet of Jesus Christ? What a great privilege we have to be able to do that. Not just in these four walls of this building, but outside in our community and the surrounding area. This is our Jerusalem. This is what Christ called us to pour out. Are we doing these things with gentleness, caring, love? Please underline these in your Bible. Truth as an examples. Why? Because more is caught than taught. More is caught than taught. And in verse 8, again, he says they not only imparted to us truth, right? The gospel. He uses that word gospel, truth. But they also imparted what? Affection. What is that? Love. You see, that's what the gospel is. It's the fullness of truth and the fullness of love. It's not a pepperoni pizza that's upside down and out of balance. It's not more pepperoni. It's not more cheese, right? I'm a foodie, right? Calvary Chapel, Calvary Chapel, you're tracking. You know, where we turn around and what do we do? We look at these things and we say, oh, this is, no. He's talking about the perfect, it's not balance. Balance is different. 
This is the per perfect fullness. Compromise is never allowed in scripture. Truth is always genuine and it's always given and it's not compromised. The woman that was caught in adultery, he didn't go, well, I know you didn't mean it. Therefore, I'm going to let it slide and you can keep doing it. No, no, no. He said, go sin no more. But he had every right under the law to pick up the stone and do what? It's a capital crime adultery, wasn't it? But he didn't kill her. Why? Because he was going to lay down his life on Calvary just as he did for you and I. How dare we go to someone else and look at them with that reproach in our eyes? Man, I'm filthy rags. I'm inadequate. The only reason I'm here is because the righteousness of God that he imparted to me. And every one of us, if we're being honest, that's exactly what he did. If you're born again, believer in Christ, that's what he's done for you. How great is that? How grand is that? He became sin, who knew no sin, that we would become what? The righteousness of God. That's why it's grace, friends. Unmerited favor, nothing we can ever earn or deserve. That's why it must be truth. We don't compromise on the gospel, but we also bring the gospel with love, affection. We're not Bible-thumping people over the head. Does that mean if somebody's practicing something that's against Scripture, like our Supreme Court today, when it tries to redefine marriage, do we turn around and go, yay? No, we don't. That's sin. We acknowledge sin is sin. However, if we meet someone that's struggling like that, do we turn around and cast them out or cast them away? Absolutely not. What do we do? We love on them. We invest in them. We point them to the word of God. And we watch, we watch as Jesus does that work of knitting that heart and healing what's there and restores them. And then I assure you, they walk away from that lifestyle because they're going to be more in love with God than they will their sexuality. But that's only if that's lived out. It can't be browbeaten, because all that does is repel and push people back. That's why he says it's got to be gospel and affection, truth and love. And that's what the fullness is. And I think this is the genuine calling, I believe with all my heart, this is the genuine calling of every born-again believer in Christ. Right? It's not just something an under-shepherd does. I don't believe that. But it's work, isn't it? Look at verse 9, what he says there. He says he labored, right? They labored day and night. You know, those pastors and leaders in Thessalonica labored and they expected nothing in return. They didn't even want to burden the flock in any way, right? Including financially. Paul, Paul states it again in verse 9. We preach the gospel of God because it's always been truth and love. He says it again so that there's no misunderstanding his motivation. Now, some of you know Pastor Joe Foch from Calvary Chapel, Philly. I know him well. I know Pastor Jerry uh, from um, Calvary Chapel, Philly. I remember when I first came down here six plus seven years ago, and uh, I was talking to Joe and Jerry, and um, specifically Jerry, I think, at that time. And I remember Jerry, you know, because I was saying, is anybody planting work out here? Is anybody bringing the word of God in this area? And nobody had come to the Harrisburg area. So I was like, oh, praise the Lord. God, you're calling. Okay, I'm, I'm going to go. We're going to make that drive. You guys know that. We did it for eight months. We drove back and forth twice or once every other week. Twice, and then finally we moved uh, or we moved and we did every weekly. And then finally we moved down here. And um, I remember Jerry giving me, Pastor Jerry giving me really uh, just words of scripture and wisdom. He said, I, I'm going to tell you one thing. He says, you make sure they're the best loved and the best fed sheep anywhere. If you do that, you'll never have to worry about a church growth plan 
You'll never have to look at all this machinations and monkey business of these marketers in the world and how to reach people. He says, you just teach the word of God and you just love them as Jesus loves them. If you can do that, what can't the Holy Spirit do? You see, everybody's got, you know, kids, young people, they got baloney meters built in. So do we. We know what the motivation of uh, different people, different situations are. He's, uh, it's very good wisdom, and anybody that's ever considering a home study, it's good wisdom for you to have, too. Yeah, this wasn't lip service. If, if you know, again, Pastor Joe, Joe Foch, man, it's what you see is what you get. He, he's been doing this 28, 30 years. Many of you guys know him. What you see is what you get. Same thing with Jerry. I'd have him come here. I'm, I'm praying about having him come here down here and share on a Wednesday or something with the flock here. He's very, they're praying for you. They love you. They're very aware of what God's doing here. And same thing with Finger Lakes and Pastor Scott Gallatin, all these guys. So many people praying for those people, you know, for all of us here, for the work God's doing. But I, I just share this because you know where they learned it from? Pastor Chuck Smith. Because Morris caught and taught. He lived that way in Costa Mesa, California. And you know where he learned that? Just by reading his Bible. Just by reading his Bible. Every one of us, if we read the Word of God, we come to the same conclusion. You know, there's always opportunities to get involved. There's always opportunities to serve in the church. Right now, children's ministry. We're, we're looking for people to help out. We need five or so teachers for children's ministry. But we just don't want five. We want people that we're looking for teachers that have kids around the same age so that they can pour in and they can make relationships so the kids can grow up together and have each other and be strong. So that way they play together. They have like-minded mothers that are struggling. You know, you, we, we, mothers, you, some of us have been, you, well, ladies, you've been there. I've been the father, but you've been there. And uh, you know what it's like when you're not sleeping and you're not eating like you normally would want to because you're taking care of the child. And, and just have somebody to sit down and just, just be encouraged with. There's nothing that replaces that, actually having that true koinonia. And that's why I, I'm, I'm praying that the Lord will raise up, you know, five new teachers that, are, that have children in the fellowship, that actually have them in the children's ministry so they can participate and have that koinonia that way. It's beautiful. Um, but there's always opportunities to serve and just being about God's business. Well, if you look at verse 10 here, as we're getting ready to close, we have our communion this morning here. But we'll look at verse 10. As we look at this model church, he gives us a couple words here to study and understand. The first one's devotion. What does that mean? That idea of heartfelt intention. That's what it means, a heartfelt intention. Devotion means heartfelt intention. And how justly, what's that word mean? It means right living, living right, right? And they lived. And Paul even said they were blameless. And think about that word. That means without blame or guile. That's what this model church looked like from Pastor Paul, the Apostle Paul. Again, as he's in Corinth writing this letter over there, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that's their character. I wonder how Calvary Chapel, Harrisburg, West Shore, you know, here in Camp Hill, I wonder how and would our character, I wonder what the Christian Academy, the school that's associated in the ministry of this church, I wonder what the teachers, the school, the children, all of us here, what do people see when they see us? Do they see that we're devoted, heartfelt? Do they see that we're walking justly, right living? Do they see that we're blameless, right? Without blame or guile. 
that there's no guile or deceit in any of us because we're living pure and holy and set apart unto the Lord God. I love how Paul's investing in the bride here, right? It wasn't do as I say, but not as I do. No, that would be hypocrisy. He lived this out, right? And I love how he says this. He says, you know, pastors and leaders of the church, what are they to do? They're to exhort. Do you see that? And look in the scripture. He says exhort, which means to warn, correct, right? To counsel. Comforted. What's that mean? Well, that has the idea of to calm, to console, to encourage, right? And to charge others, right? To, to be good and to present. As little Paul is saying, he wanted to present his children as a pastor, under the children of the flock, he wanted to present them to Jesus Christ pure, without blemish. That's a real pastor's heart. It's, it's not just somebody that teaches the word. Anybody can teach the word. I don't mean to take that lightly. Anybody can do that. But is a true under-shepherd, by definition, is Ephesians 4, a pastor teacher. It's one that turns around and handles the word of God, but it's also one that has a love, a true agape love for the flock. And that he's willing to lay his own life down for those around him. He's not a respecter of persons. He doesn't tell people what they want to hear. He tells them what they need to hear. And he doesn't do that out of his own opinion. He does that because he reads the word of God and the scripture speaks to the situation in their lives. And again, I'm going to remind all of us here. Are you ministers? First Peter 2, right? You're, you're ministers, aren't you? You're a royal priesthood a precious people. Do you think Jesus might want us this morning to understand these things, that this is the way to where to conduct ourselves in the way that we minister as you go into the divine appointments as we read in the early part of chapter one, and the early part of first two verses in chapter two, these divine appointments he has for us? You think he might want to use all of us as willing and able vessels? I think the obvious answer is yes. And then because that's real ministry. That's what real ministry looks like. All of you going forward, you come here, you get encouraged, you hear the word of God, you build each other up, and then you go out into the mission field. Wherever he sends you, in your jobs, your homes, your grandchildren, everything, your children. And what's the purpose of all this? Why do we have this word and why is he telling us to do that? Look at verse 12. That you would walk worthy of God. who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. There's no other way. There's no other way. Trust and obey, right? That's what we sing. We just sang it here this morning, trust and obey. I like that. This is what it looks like. This is the model for this church, the goal and the aim to live what? Devout, just, and blameless. While investing in others and exhortation, comforting and charging and imploring the saints. And, you know, we must create a life that is wholly dedicated unto God and therefore living and walking that out. We, we're not perfect. We sin and fall short of the glory of God. But if we just let the Holy Spirit take control, what can't he do, friends? You and Jesus are a multitude. There's nobody alone here. If you're a single or a widow and you think you're alone, you're not alone. You and Jesus are a multitude. And Jesus never wanted you to forget that. 
Well, how do you know that, Pastor? Are you sure you're not opining? No. This morning, we're going to turn our attention and focus to communion. I'd like to ask you at this time, you're going to have cups right in front of your seats. They're individual cups because of the days we're living. I long for when we can go back to the regular, huh? How about it, right? Yeah, crushing them together as we did it in unity. Grab one of those little cups. Go ahead and open one of the little plastic. I want to invite the musicians to come forward, please. And as you open it, um, it won't make noise while we go through communion. So I've kind of learned that we need to sort of do that ahead of time. Otherwise, it can be distracting as we're trying to listen to the word of the Lord. As you're getting that ready, I'm going to read the word of God. My passage this morning is in Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to begin at verse 17. And then we'll, we'll all partake of the communion together. I'll actually get ready myself here so I don't have to. You know, all these things that we do, we do unto Christ, as we said, right? This is important because, again, Jesus has given us communion as a blessing. It's not only a memorial, but it's a blessing when you begin to think about it. Listen, when he was going to celebrate the Passover, right? And remember what the Passover was. The idea, you know, the the blood above the doorposts like that, and the angel passing over and not harming the firstborn child, male child of the families, basically in that area of Goshen being supernaturally protected. We have been the blessing, even through this pandemic, we have seen some people get COVID. We've seen that happen. But praise Jesus Christ, God has healed every one of them, is bringing them through that. And we're ever so grateful for that. And I believe he's putting his hand upon this bride here. And I thank him for that. I praise God for that. And I continue to pray for that. But look at verse 17. Now, on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread... I'm in Matthew chapter 26, by the way. He says, uh, the, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand and I will keep the Passover at your house with your disciples. You know what's amazing about this? Is God had already made all the preparations. God had already gone before him. That's my prayer, what he's doing for the land for us. He's, he's already gone before these things. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Can you imagine as he's sitting at that meal, that Passover celebration with them, that knowing that even conflict exists in our greatest moments. Again, our circumstances change. Our God never does. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each one of the band said, Lord, is it I? He answered and said to them, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. Then the Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better or good for that man if he had never been born. Then Judas, who betrayed him, answered and said, Rabbi, Rabboni, teacher, is it I? He said to him, you have said it. Jesus never minced words. There's never a situation where we don't know where we stand with God. Please understand that. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it. I want you to understand how he pivots here. You're in the room, right? This just happened. We just recognize that one of Jesus' closest, one of the disciples, the 12, has decided they're going to go betray Jesus Christ. And you would think that would just generally wreck us, right, in that moment. Our emotions and everything would be born before us. But nothing was going to, 
Nothing was going to distract Jesus Christ from doing the will of the Father. The Holy Spirit testifies of the Son, and the Son testifies of the Father. He says, I did not come to do my own will, but the will of my Father. We are here to bring glory to God. If you're married, to become one, one flesh, you bring glory to the Lord. If you are single and a widow, you are wed to Jesus, bring glory unto the Lord. Either way, we bring glory unto the Lord. And he's reminding them as he's sitting there, even in this moment, all this going on, he turns and he says, take this bread, right? And he shows this, a picture of this, you know, this manna, this unleavened bread as he's, well, I guess we call it holy bread, but it's not truly manna. It's, it's a wafer, it's unleavened bread that way. It's, right? He takes it and he's kind of breaking, he's looking at it. He's not, certainly not saying, this is me, but is he giving them an understanding that just as this is broken, I'm going to be broken for you, for me. You see, it wasn't Pontius Pilate, the Jews, or even the Gentiles at that time to put Jesus Christ on the cross. It was me. Because I've sinned, and I fall short of the glory of God, and he took my sin upon him. And by his stripes, I have been healed. You have been healed. And so he takes and he, he gives thanks. Please notice that. He, even in this, even in his moment where he knows, he's giving thanks for what happens before him because he knows that in the sorrow, as we read already in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, in the difficulties, even from our perspective, good is going to be done through this even if we can't understand it all, even in the world we're living today, friends, we're seeing terrible, evil things happen. Isaiah 5, terrible things, evil being called good, good being called evil, happening all around us. But God is allowing it because there is a purpose. Just as there were purpose for Messiah, Jesus, our Lord. He says, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks. Again, giving thanks, Right? And he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood. It is the new covenant. Just let that, just let that wreck you for a minute. A new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31, the covenant he has promised to his chosen people, the Jews. He gave to all of the Gentiles, to everyone who would call upon his name and believe. And he's done all of this because of his love for you and I. He brought a new covenant. He said, this blood, it's shed for many for the remission of sins. He says, but I say unto you, I will not drink this fruit of the vine from now until the day when we drink it anew or I drink it anew with new in my father's kingdom. When is he talking about? Revelation chapter 19. When we attend the wedding feast with the lamb. As he opens the scriptures and he says, to you today, so all of us gathered in Christ, this has been fulfilled. As we sit and we watch him drink of that vine again. I invite us all here as the musicians play. I'm going to invite us to partake here together. And I'm going to give my sister a water because she needs one. Ready? Heads up. You got one? All right, good. No choking allowed.